Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Andrea Conliffe. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a piece from Mark Dunley who talks to Alexis Goldsmith of Beyond Plastics about the bottle bill and packaging reduction. Then... Andrea Cunliffe brings us an update on our Election Watch 2023 coverage. Later on, we have a live stream excerpt from the activist group All of Us. After that, after that, we have an interview from May Kelly on light pollution and its impact on migratory birds. Finally, we go to the archives to hear a speech on a two-state solution in Palestine and Israel. But first, here are the headlines. Early voting in this year's election begins Saturday, October 28th and runs to Sunday, November 5th, in limited polling stations and places in each county. There is no voting Monday, November 6th. Election day is Tuesday, November 7th, at all regular polling places, which will be open from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Saturday, October 28th, is the last day for new voters to register to vote. New York's highest court in a split f- in a split 4 to 3 decision ruled Wednesday that based on a 1994 law, law enforcement law enforcement can search the state's DNA database to find fam- to find familiar matches to DNA that they have collected in criminal investigations. The state of New York has released a law enforcement domestic incident model policy outlining the best practices and procedures for police officers and supervisors to follow, with the goal of promoting safety for victims and officers, connecting individuals to services and support, and preserve evidence of a crime. The state of New York is, peel- is appealing the federal, emergency management, the federal Emergency Management Agency's decision to deny individual aid to Orange and Ontario County residents who need refill from this summer's historic flooding. A bill to ban corporal punishment in all schools statewide was signed into law this week by the governor. That is it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you could contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. Now, first up, the New York State Legislature held two hearings on the bottle bill and packaging reduction on October 23rd and 24th. Alexis Goldsmith of Beyond Plastics sits down with Mark Dunley to discuss the key issues and questions that emerged during the hearing. We're talking with Alexis Goldsmith, the organizing director of Beyond Plastics. And earlier uh, this week, um, there was a series of hearings in the state legislature, first about the um, bottle bill, um, a bigger, better bottle bill. And the second was about packaging uh, reduction act, how to improve recycling. 
And so we've asked Alexis to come back and talk to us about how the hearings went, and particularly maybe we should start with the um, the, the bottom bill since she actually testified at that. But do you have any overall impressions first you want to share about uh, how the legislator was reacting to these issues in general? Well, I would say that um, there were some things that we learned that were new um, about the legislature's attitudes. Um, we did learn some things from the DEC and the New York City DEC, Department. Department of Environmental Conservation. Right, the State Department of Environmental Conservation and the New York City Department of Sanitation um, that we didn't know before that I would be happy to talk about. Okay, so um, what was the um, reaction about the idea that we should be expanding uh, the bottom bill, increasing the deposit from five to ten cents, and um, also covering more beverage containers? I understand you came up with an, a, a proposal that seemed to generate some uh, reaction. Right. So the current bill would raise the deposit to ten cents, expand the types of containers to non-carbonated beverages to include a deposit. I've talked about that before many times on the show. Um, but what I did advocate for in my testimony was to bring back refill in combination with deposits. Refill is the gold standard for the environment, and up until the 1970s, soda was sold in refillable glass bottles with a deposit that were returned, washed, and used again. So Coca-Cola has already committed to 25% refill by 2030, and we're telling the legislature just put that in statute. Um, they say they can do it. Let's make it happen uh, because single-use plastic bottles don't get recycled into new bottles, and the beverage companies are producing 1 million single-use bottles a minute. So we need to address the plastic bottle waste, and refill is the best way to go. Yeah, I always mention that I was in uh, Nicaragua about 15 years ago and, and bought, uh, you know, some uh, Coca-Cola on a hot sun, sunny day. Uh, the street vendor would not let me take the bottle. They, they, she poured the uh, the uh, Coca-Cola into a plastic bag, and it was because um, they are reusable uh, in, in Latin America, and she was not about to, uh, you know, let a, a bottle get away. So it's sort of interesting they can they can do this in uh, Latin America, but they can't do it uh, uh, in the United States. Um, was there any you know pushback from any of the uh, either legislators or convenience store operators about the expanded bottle bill? And what's the sort of the challenge to actually getting this thing? Proved because the expansion has been kicking around now for a couple of years. You know, surprisingly, I did not hear pushback from the convenience stores, from the American Beverage Association. In fact, there was a representative from the New York Wine Policy Institute that said they were already looking at how to do a refill for wine, which I thought was very encouraging. The legislature, I wouldn't say they pushed back on refill, but they were asking legitimate questions about how it would work. And the answer to that is we need to build out refill infrastructure, which would create jobs and a more resilient local economy for New York because taking back the bottles means somebody has to wash it. And so dishwashing facilities would take these bottles back, wash them, redistribute them, 
And that would both create jobs for New Yorkers and ultimately, I think, save companies money because it's cheaper to wash and refill a bottle than to use raw materials for a new bottle. Now, this, of course, was a legislative hearing, but you mentioned that, uh, you know, DEC and New York City were there. Uh, any sense where the, you know, the Hochul administration, the governor stands on trying to finally uh, get a bigger, better bottle bill? Yeah, so DEC De Acting Deputy Commissioner Dave Vitale was there testifying, and he did tell us that it is unlikely to be in the governor's budget, the Bigger Better Bottle Bill, which was really important information to know for our organizing efforts, um, because the budget track for passing bills looks much different than the regular legislative session. And then DEC um, talked a lot about return to retail and enforcing return to retail. Um, and then we need to make sure that stores are set up to accept the containers that they're selling. They're required to do so by law to accept deposit containers if they sell them. Um, but in New York City, it can be very difficult for people to return their uh, redeemables. And if they can't return them, then they can't get the deposit back and it essentially becomes tax. So we really need to preserve return to retail, enforce return to retail. And um, the other thing is we need to save our redemption centers um, that are struggling because they can't continue to operate on the what's called the handling fee for the bottles. So redemption centers get a 3.5 cent fee that the producers pay for every bottle but um, the bill would raise that so they have more income coming in. Now, the second hearing was on the uh, Package and Reduction Act. And, you know, a lot of that is, debate has been about um, how high, such as a 50% reduction in the next 10 to 12 years, we should set in terms of reducing um, plastic weight. But uh, what, what were some of the, uh, I don't know, important comments or observations that came out of there weren't many surprises for us um, because we've been very engaged with stakeholders from the very beginning of this process and um, had a lot of conversations with the bill sponsors and with the legislature in general. You know, we've done a lot of meetings. Um, so the biggest thing that we learned was New York City Department of Sanitation has flipped its position on what's called chemical recycling. Chemical recycling is a suite of highly polluting, expensive technologies that are being pushed by the petrochemical industry as the solution for plastic waste, when mostly what they do is turn plastic into fuel that is burned. And the bill currently does not allow chemical recycling to count towards the recycling targets of 70% of for packaging. New York City Department of the New York City Mayor's Office was again was supportive of keeping chemical recycling out of the bill, but in the hearing, the Department of Sanitation testified that they would like chemical recycling to be allowed for the recycling targets. Though they said they wouldn't oppose the bill if that didn't if they didn't get that. So that was concerning that they had flipped their position, and I think is indicative of the um, the petrochemical interest lobby being out in force right now, uh, lobbying the mayor, lobbying the city council, lobbying the state legislature. Um, and then uh, besides that, though, we didn't learn much of anything new. The American Chemistry Council testified um, they wanted chemical recycling in the bill. Um, so that was the biggest 
the biggest thing I think for this bill right now is is chemical recycling and making sure that the definition of recycling in the bill isn't gutted by this industry push to allow for plastic to fuel to count as recycling. Now, listening to some of the other media reports, um, some of them highlighted that um, sort of the Farm Bureau apparently raised some concerns and it also seemed, you know, what the um, manufacturers of packaging are doing and say, oh, this is really complicated. We need a lot more, you know, study. Let's slow this process down. Um, you know, how did the you know, legislators respond to some of those concerns by the opponents? So pushing for a study is generally a way of slowing down a bill. Um, we know that packaging is causing immense pollution. We know that it's contributing to climate change. We know there are alternatives. What the bill does is a needs assessment, which is a study, but the study is finding what is the refill infrastructure capacity in New York State already, and where do we need to get to to get to our refill and reduction requirements? What is our recycling capacity in the state already, and what do we need to get to to get to 70% recycling for all packaging? What do we need in terms of infrastructure for people to access recycling and reuse? So that kind of study is already included in the bill. So it's kind of a moot point, but we definitely don't need to delay this bill. We need this bill done this session. If people want more information, uh, I think beyondplastics.org. It's Alexis Goldsmith, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Mark Dunley talking with Alexis Goldsmith of Beyond Plastics. You can find more stories on the bottle bill on our website at www.mediasanctuary.org. Wednesday, October 18th at the Italian Community Center in Troy, the City of Troy elected offices were invited to the forum. The focus was on the City Council positions from District 4 and 6. This segment is recorded that evening, and this is an introduction to the four candidates, two from District 4 and two from 6. We begin with Carol Harvin and Thomas J. Casey from District 6, followed by Aaron J. Vera and Darcy Cunningham Casey from District 4. We have candidates from the 4th District and the 6th District, and I want them to take a moment to introduce themselves and just tell you a little bit about themselves in just about a minute. So next thing we're going to do is you all are just going to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Carol Harmon, I reside in South Troy. I live on First Street. I have been a school board member for 22 years. I have been vice president, president, parliamentarian, and I also work on the diversity and transportation. That was when we had all these different divisions on the school board, but now all the board members work as a whole. I am active in the union very active in the union. I'm a member, retired, I am retired, I'm a member of PAP, Public Employees Federation, and a member for 28 years as president of CSEA, which stands for the Civil Service Employees Association, and I have been endorsed by them. I have been married for 42 years. I have three children. I have one child, I'm sorry, one child and three grandchildren. My one daughter, is an attorney and she works with 
the governor. She signs the legislation which the governor signs. I have three granddaughters. One is in college, the other two are in grammar school. My husband was a very dedicated employee for the city of Troy. He worked for the Department of Public Works. And he passed away five years ago, two days after my birthday, on January 18th of 20, 20, 2018. <coughs> I am very active in politics. I'm very active in everything I do. I put everything in what I am asked to do. I'm running for city council for district number six. I know I am the person that can do the job. Once I'm asked to do something, I put everything into it to make sure it is completed. And I do return telephone calls and emails. I just want you to know that I am involved also with ACLU, also involved with the other unions that are there. Anything, I am pro-union. I am, like I said before, I am retired. And I also is still a member, an administrative member for CSEA, because employees have the right to be paid for the work they do, to have people working up in these hierarchy positions, and they have the little people on the totem pole making less to make themselves look good. Casey, thanks for having me here. Uh, I just want to tell everybody, uh, this is the new District 6, newly redrawn. I have deep roots in this district. Uh, my grandmother was a Kennedy from Lincoln Avenue. My grandparents lived on 2nd Street. My father lived in this neighborhood all his life. He ran a business at Canal and 4th Casey's Tavern. Uh, so they lived all over that district. Now I've lived all, I started my life, I came home from the hospital, building one, uh, apartment 30, Griswold Heights. So I lived in uh, public housing. And then I lived all over South Troy, uh, 4th Street. I lived on First Monroe over Mars. I worked for Mike Marr back in the day. I don't know if you know Mike Marr, great man. He was a councilman, uh, Vietnam vet, great guy. Uh, I went to Troy schools. I raised uh, four kids uh, in Troy. Um, I have three grandchildren. I said today I, I followed my uncle and my father in the fire department as a fire captain. I was a captain paramedic and I found yesterday my son Tom made number one on the captain's test. So he's going to follow It's just great. Uh, my daughter just became a nurse. I have a son in the Sheriff's Academy in Charlotte, North Carolina. And my daughter just called me the other day. She's getting a promotion at the state. So four kids are all doing great. I couldn't be any prouder. But I'll tell you, I worked for the city. I went to Troy schools. Then I worked for Troy Housing, and I inspected uh, their units and Section 8. I ended up doing Section 8. Made sure those people had safe and clean and dignified environment to raise their families. But during that time, I really, through the schools and working for the city and housing, I really grew up and met everybody in the workforce. So I was always a person that people knew they could call for things. And that's kind of what you hear door to door is they want constituent relations. Somebody's going to answer their call. Recently, I got a phone call. Somebody's had a dog is hit down at 4th Street. Well, I knew to call Kevin McDonough, the animal control officer. Somebody said, there's abandoned cars. Well, you know, you could call, you know, Sergeant Magneto. Uh, I can't get things picked up. Tom Abbott, uh, 
public utilities, you call, you call Butchie Hall. So that's kind of what I already do, and I enjoy doing it. I tell people, I give people, let me get my prop out, I give people my magnet, and it's got my name on it, because people don't really know their councilman's name anymore. I want them to know my name. And I put all the important numbers in the city of Troy, and I say, call these numbers. If you can't get satisfaction, don't know who to call or you have another issue. I put my own phone number on the bottom. Keep it on your fridge. I say, call me. I'll help you with anything. I actually got a call the other night, 11.30 at night, for a girl with a flat tire. I said, I can't really help you with that. Call her tomorrow, maybe I can help you. But I, I tell you, I want to be accessible, and if you do have a problem, I'm probably going to come down to your house and see what your problem is. I already patrol the alleys. You know, I look at the garbage. Uh, if you have a problem, I'm going to come down. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to be accessible. Your street doesn't get plowed. It was snowed overnight. You know, you got to be responsive. My councilman one time was Ken Zalewski. Nobody plowed our street till 10 o'clock, and the snow came the night before. Call Ken, and it happened. That's where you have to be. You have to be responsive, and that's what I want to do. And uh, I'm going to be responsible. To Responsive to, to the constituents' needs. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm trying to let people know that they have someone who's going to advocate on their behalf and be there a phone call away. Thank you. Thank you to Tom and Carol, both running for the 6th District. So now we're going to turn it over to our 4th District candidates. Hello, Mayor. Thank you, Sammy and ICC and Marissa for having me tonight. My name is Darcy Casey, and I'm running for District 4 City Council. I am a lifelong resident of Troy, as of many generations before me, actually South Troy. I previously worked in the State Senate, serving under Senator Bill Larkin for 20 years as his executive assistant. I've resolved many conflicts as constituent relations. Today, I serve as acting commissioner for Rensselaer County Office for the Aging. I oversee 75 employees amongst the five senior centers located throughout Rensselaer County. In addition, we provide several services to benefit our seniors. My goal is to provide the seniors with all the services that they so deserve. If given this opportunity, I believe I could be an asset to the council my children have grown in Troy, and I'm very proud to be part of Troy. I have dedication, and I believe I could be an asset should I be elected for the council position. Thank you. Um, my name is Aaron Vera, and I'm a candidate for City Council, District 4. Uh, I moved to Troy about 14 years ago, shortly after graduating college. I went to the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, where I graduated with my bachelor's in civil engineering. Um, since then, I've, I've married. Um, I have two children that we're raising in the area. Both attend public schools. Um, I've, I've worked in consulting engineering um, since moving to the area. Um, in 2017, I started my own business, um, so I'm a small business owner. Um, I've also done some work for the city of Troy. I served on the planning commission as the chairman, and I uh, was also the city engineer for a time. Um, a little bit about why I'm running is I want to continue the work that I was 
have been doing in the city um, as it relates to infrastructure, staffing. Um, I'd like to get into legislation to improve some of the, the housing problems that we have here. The cost of housing is, is rising drastically, um, and we need to work with developers and um, affordable housing advocates to increase the, the housing supply. Um, and another thing I would hope to do while on the city council is come up with innovative ways to increase revenue. Um, a lot of the, the issues that I think the city has require some additional uh, monies and funding to uh, take those on, and um, I would hope to be effective on the city council if elected. Thank you. Thank you to all four of you. This has been Andrea Kamla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Election Watch 2023 reporting. Early voting for Choice State of Council begins on October 28th. Make sure you cast your vote if you are able. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. And finally, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Shore, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we have an excerpt from a live stream hosted by the Schenectady Activist Group, All of Us, titled, Whose Imagination Are We Living In? Let's define that first. What does that even mean when we're talking about whose imagination are you living in? What does it mean to you? Other people make decisions every single day that impact our lives. And if we do not actively engage in who those people are that represent us, mm -hmm. then we've just handed over our lives to other folks to decide. I agree. I agree. I'll just only add that everything around us is created as is a part of creation, right? Someone created that idea, someone created from the shoes to the structure of politics, right? It comes from the, um, the imagination, uh, the creativity of human beings and structure. So who imagination are you living in is literally about who has designed the world you're living in and what say do you have in that design, right? Yeah. Do you have any say in that design? At the local, state, federal, and global level. Right. Yeah. The the news has been filled with a lot. If we only go back to October seventh, yeah. right? Um, there's there's been a lot in the way of loss of life, again, locally across the state, yeah. um, across the nation, and around the world. Uh, we continue to see violence, and um, on all types of different levels, which includes what investment looks like mm -hmm. towards ending violence and, mm -hmm. and who is getting support and who isn't it's about context right yeah before we move right into what you know voting yes we, we have elections up, yes but i just wanted to acknowledge a bit of what's happening behind the wall um recently green haven correctional facility in new york state was put on lockdown um for reasons that i still do not know to this date uh, they were on lockdown for, I believe, a couple of weeks. Um, we've got, you know, word from guys inside about kind of what was happening uh, and the conditions that they were facing. And you have folks being locked down for 24 hours a day. 
uh, not being let out at all, barely being fed, having whatever property they had destroyed and food that, you know, packages coming from family members being either stolen or destroyed. And like, I don't know if many of you really understand what it means to be under that kind of oppressive, um, completely under control of another, you know, other individuals in that way. But it is it is so traumatizing and terrifying for everyone involved in, in, in that. It's like, you know, family members are being hurt because their loved ones are being hurt, yeah. right? Individuals are going through all, all kinds of hell and have no kind of protection because people really honestly don't care. I looked at some of the, the many people don't care. The comments. I looked at some of the comments that you saw on the post and people were like, well, tough it out. You'll be okay. Like, it's yeah. like, like you were able to do this and that. And it's like, we do, and this goes back to, I think this covers, like, it, it, there's thread lines back to the other two topics that we talked about, right? It's like, people will justify all kinds of things to other yeah. human beings, right? And when you other another human being, when you remove or, or, diminish a person's humanity yeah right then you're capable i think james Bowman says this too like you're at that point you're capable of murder yeah right that's a proclamation of genocide as a proclamation of death and when you look at what's happening in green haven and being allowed to happen in green haven and then there being no real kind of media attention or community attention about what the brutality is there because it's acceptable acceptable acts of violence yeah. against individuals who are deemed what Redeemed what? What's the word? You... Oh, the category of the irredeemable. That's a that's a actually a phrase yeah. um, that I that I got from my brother Rodney Spivy. Yeah, and just like back to like the very beginning of what we're talking about, like whose imagination are you living in? Yeah, like who created the system that you're a part of today and accept wholeheartedly without question, right? Who created it? Like I think that one of the one of the most powerful things that anyone can do um, in their own personal life is to like take stock of themselves and the condition they sit and the and the environment that they're in. Right, being yeah. able to kind of understand that you know this is the system that I was born into and told that these are the standards of what you know should be uh, or shouldn't be. You have an obligation, I think, to question all of that. Absolutely. Right, and my, not many people do. We just accept the norm for what it is and do do very, therefore, do have little effort yeah. in the fight for change. Well, one way we can change some things is to, is to vote. But yeah. my one vote doesn't matter. I'm only one voice. Yep. It doesn't matter if I go to the polls because it's going to be the same anyways. Yeah. And Listen, how I'm, many people I'm, ain't voting? I'm, I'm saying it in a mocking voice, but I, I do fully understand. We've talked to probably thousands of people yeah and we've heard the whys even if they're registered to vote and they don't go and vote we we've we've heard the the rationalization um the disenfranchisement mm -hmm. that exists intentionally so they don't want you to vote they don't they're not making it easy they're not supporting you to be like this is a great idea you really should go and vote because you know it's not in our schools to the extent that some other things are mm -hmm. um it's 13,000 people, mm -hmm. approximately, a little bit more, in the city of Schenectady are eligible to vote, but are not registered to vote. As a matter of fact, when I was walking here today, mm -hmm. um, someone saw you me. You registered someone to vote on the walkhead? He's a bad, he's a bad joker, man. So, really? so really? I, he saw the shirt. 
And he was like, hey, what are we talking about today? I said, oh, you're going to have to watch the live to find out. Um, and then I immediately said, are you registered to vote? <laughs> it gets better. He goes, well, no, I have a felony. Oh, Doesn't mean you can't register to vote. That's right. right? Doesn't mean. But that was his first thing. Oh, well, I can't. Yeah. And I said, okay, so one, watch the live. Two, send me a message. I'm going to send you the link so you can register to vote because tomorrow's the last day. And you, you have to register to register to vote for the upcoming election. For the upcoming election. Yes. yes. And which matters locally yes. for city councils and mayors and yeah. um, DAs across New York State. Mm -hmm. There will be local elections yes. that decide what programs and services will get funded. How much the budget for the police department will be? Huge topic in Schenectady, which the current proposal is an increase, yeah. which it has been every single year, an increase to the police department. But and also like where investments are going to go in yes. the community period. Yep. What places are getting going to get investments and what places are not? The the size of the investment, etc. Like all of those things are in the power of folks that are you know that are actually running for election. Um, and, and that's why your vote matters. It's still on the community, right? It's still on all of us to kind of figure out what it is we want to do. I know it works. It's still on all of us to figure out what it is we want to do collectively um, in our communities. And who we want to represent exactly. us because exactly. it's only hundreds of votes that often are the difference. That determine yeah. the yeah. winner. Yeah. So let's say the 13,000 people don't register to vote. Mm -hmm. But 1,000 like-minded individuals mm -hmm. who want all of us to be able to live in our homes and care for each other and care for ourselves and our yeah. child to have, children have the best possible education um, and all the things that we've been talking about for a very long time. And they find a candidate that says, here are the policies I'll literally put in place. They could win. Yeah. How many people showed up at the school board election three years ago? That's a good question. Maybe 1,200. There are more than 30,000 individuals registered to vote. Yeah. About 25% in our most, our poorest communities actually show up to vote. Mm -hmm. And regular elections. Mm -hmm. It's far less for school board, mm -hmm. which is matters to me because I'm a school board member. So, you know, a couple thousand people decide how we're going to spend millions of dollars for our children. Yeah. Yeah. The most money we've ever had um, in a school district because of your work and others' work and making sure yeah. we're fully funded. Yep. Um, we we need to see, I think, change that's, that, that equates to what the funding is now. And I don't know if that's happening, but I know that I, I know where to go find out. Yeah. <laughs> that's a fact. Know where to go. So it matters who's in those seats. That's right. It matters what policies are written. If we're looking for safer communities, there are solutions, and there are solutions in our communities. Mm -hmm. Folks do bitch and complain, mm -hmm. but they often also have solutions. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're here for. We're here for solutions. We're here for more folks to be registered to vote. And this this is what we're going to do. Find solutions. Find solutions. Find solutions. And the solution is us, right? And I don't mean us as teacher maker. No, I mean but us, he does. All of us <laughs> and as, as our community. Like, it really yeah. is us. We have the power for change. Uh, remember that. Whose imagination are you living in? Should be living in yours. That's right. And right? for that to happen, we need to ensure the folks who are making decisions for us mm -hmm. hear from us, 
represent us and are supporting the lives of all of us. And that's another reason why we all have to get out and get our vote heard. So I thank you, Moses Nagel, for bringing us this segment. And you can find more information on all of us and the link to the full stream on our website. Next, we have a piece from Mae Kelly, who talked to Neil Gifford about light pollution, its impact on migratory birds, and how we can dim our lights to help our friends in the sky. So I guess I just wanted to start off by thanking you for talking to me about this topic. And I guess just start with like a brief introduction and uh, what your role is at the Albany Pine Bush. So my name is Neil Gifford. I'm the Conservation Director at the Albany Pine Bush Preserve Commission. And I serve as the Commission's Lead Scientist, um, providing oversight for all of the research and management within the 3,400-acre Albany Pine Bush Preserve. So the topic that I wanted to talk about today was... Uh, primarily like our effects on migratory birds and stuff like that. To kind of start off, how how do you see that light pollution impacts migratory birds? Yeah, that's a great question. Light pollution affects migratory birds primarily by disorienting them. And that disorientation leads them to spend a lot of time and energy. So it can it can lead to exhaustion, but also which can ultimately lead to mortality. And not just mortality because they're tired, but when they're tired, they make mistakes. So in particular, you're probably familiar with um, the light display for the 9-11 memorial in New York City. And they actually now shut that off during particular key times during migration because the birds get disoriented and fly around the light and end up getting tired and running into buildings. So they rely on like natural sources of light? Yeah, yeah. birds have a toolbox that they use for, for navigation when they migrate. And depending on the conditions, they'll use any number of those tools. So it includes magnetic fields. It includes on clear nights, they use stars and the moon. So they'll use natural light that way. Landmark features particularly for, for migrating songbirds. Migrating songbirds primarily migrate at night. So they leave right after sunset and fly throughout the night. And typically they'll stop in the morning wherever they happen to be. So as you can imagine, migration is a really expensive endeavor for birds, especially small birds like the ones that breed here, right? the tropical birds that breed in the pine bush during the summer and then go back south for the winter. You have a seven and a half gram, eight gram bird that's flying, you know, about 3,000 miles to go from here to uh, to Central America. And uh, birds are in trouble. So the, the main, one of the big reasons why light pollution in particular is problematic for birds is that it can lead to mortality and it's something we can address. According to a 2022 report from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in particular, forest and grassland birds of North America have declined by over 25% since 1970. In the pine bush alone, there are 203 documented species and most of those are, are migratory. What do locations such as the pine bush offer for these birds? I guess like through their travel or just yeah. in general resources? Yep, that's a great question. And we've been actually bird banding and studying bird migration in the preserve for about 17 years. But the short answer is habitat and refuge. So imagine if you're an eight gram bird flying from you know the Northwestern territories of Canada, like mm -hmm. a black pole warbler might be, they, they fly all the way across the continent to the, to the northeastern United States and the Canadian Maritimes, and then book out over the open ocean to head to Brazil. So having reliable places to stop, rest, and refuel are really important. And that's what the Albany Pine Bush does for a lot of these birds. It provides them with a place to rest, refuel, and get ready for the next leg of their journey. And typically for migratory songbirds, those migratory stopover points are bottlenecks in their annual cycle. 
they, you know, as I said, they're, I think of them more as tropical birds that summer here because they're only here for a few months of the year to take advantage of abundant food resources. And then when, as it starts getting colder, those, those insect populations that they're feeding on decline. So they fly back south. Having reliable places within that very long migration to, to rest and refuel is, is critically important. And because of our research, it's one of the reasons why the preserve was designated a bird conservation area and an important bird area because of the high concentration of migratory birds that stop here each fall. Now, you mentioned uh, bird banding in there. For people who might not know what that is, what is bird banding? Yep, that's a great question. So bird banding involves capturing and fitting birds with uh, basically a bracelet with a unique number on it. So it's kind of like a license plate. Only one bird in the world has that number. So we catch birds in the fall in our mist nets and fit them with a unique, uniquely numbered leg band, record the, the band number and the species and so forth, and then set them on their way and then to, to, fin to finish their journey. All of that data goes to the USGS bird banding lab. So anybody that ever encounters one of those birds, again, whether it's us or whether it's somebody, say, down in Florida, can report that number. And as the bird bander, I will get that information from that report. But also all of our bird banding data is contributing to the continental-wide study of birds in North America. So the um, the process of bird banding, that doesn't like affect the bird negatively, I guess? They're lightweight aluminum bands, and this mm -hmm. is the, people have been banding for a long, long time, but it effectively helps us understand what birds stop here, when, where they come from, and long-term, it helps us understand the effect of the preserved management and climate change on migratory birds. So um, as you mentioned before with the New York City, the that memorial, yeah. that's where I first encountered kind of this topic was the yeah. stories in New York and how like there's just many birds that are like laying on the street as a result of hitting the buildings. So the Albany capital region area, that's kind of different in comparison to New York. So how does this? Yes and like, no. And I, yeah. I started banding actually with Dr. Jeremy Kirkman from the New York State Museum, mm -hmm. the curator of birds there. And he sees the same phenomenon here in Albany, especially under foggy conditions. So the bird, the birds are disoriented by light. It's foggy. It's hard for them to see. They're really primarily using, you know, other cues to try and migrate. But no, he, he, he encounters the same phenomenon here in Albany, particularly around the, around the plaza mm -hmm. with dead birds in the morning. So he will, he will frequently walk the plaza and collect birds for the museum's collection. So the same thing happens here. What, what can people, like just everyday people do in order to help better this, I guess? We're all everyday people. Um, <laughs> so as I said, birds are in trouble, right? And the primary sources of mortality of songbirds, actually, all of the biggest ones by far are human caused. So the number one, according to the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, source of mortality of wild birds are cats. Outdoor house cats kill 2.4 billion with a B birds a year in North America. The second source of mortality are window strikes. So that's 600 million. So there's orders of magnitude higher for cats, but 600 million birds are estimated to be killed by windows and then 200 million by cars. So people can do a number of things to try and offset that. One is first and foremost to keep your cats indoors. I'm a field ornithologist. I love birds and I like cats. I have two and uh, <laughs> they never go outside. They're all, they're, they're indoor cats exclusively. 
There's a program called Dark Sky. So in particular during migration, like they do in New York City with temporarily um, limiting the, the lighted memorial for, for 9-11, they'll, they'll turn that off. Similarly, um, reducing outdoor light pollution mm-hmm. is helpful, especially in a lot of municipalities in that capital region colony is great with this, where they require exterior lighting to be down facing and enclosed. So it's not casting light up and out. Reducing light pollution is something that people can do at night. Reducing window glare, actually. So a lot of birds, um, particularly early in the morning when on south-facing sides of buildings where the sunlight is creating a reflection, birds can't determine that there's a win- that that's a window and a reflection versus, you know, more open space to fly through. So there are a number of things that you can do to reduce window glare. And ultimately, people can help birds by using bird-friendly landscaping. We often think about bird feeders, you know, providing bird seed. But the best bird feeders are native plants, and in particular, native shrubs that produce insects that native birds will eat. If you're really interested in getting birds in your yard, planting native trees and shrubs, in particular oaks and cherries and pines, are far better than any any bird feeder you could put out. And I guess lastly, I would say supporting open space conservation and management. The Albany pine bush is this globally rare inland pitch pine scrub oak barrens sandwiched between Albany and Schenectady that protects 3,400 acres. If we if we if we want wildlife and we want birds around us, protecting what open space there is is really really important. So even if you can't necessarily do that in your own backyard, there are lots of ways that you can support local conservation efforts to try and protect open space and strike a balance between economic development and habitat for all kinds of wildlife, including birds. So I know um, before you had mentioned research that was happening at the Pine Bush. Is there any like kind of like organizations or kind of like activities that people can get involved in to learn more about this topic? Yeah, one of the great resources would be even online just to go to the um, USGS Bird Banding Lab website and you can learn a lot about that. We've been banding birds in the fall for 17 years. We've been banding birds in the summer to evaluate the impacts of our management on birds. Birds have what's called site fidelity. So if they're successful in a habitat, the pair will return year after year to that same site. So we've been collecting and we have a lot number of volunteers that help us with our bird banding activities um, and studying birds, learning more about birds. Again, that all goes to the USGS. So they're adding to what's known of birds in North America, but also it's helping us learn about the impacts of our management and how we can modify our management to improve habitat. Eastern Whippoorwill actually have moved back into the preserve after about 30 years of being absent. We believe mm-hmm. thanks to our management and creating favorable habitat for them. If anybody searches online, the American Bird Conservancy or Audubon, of course, are great, great places to learn about migratory birds. Is there anything else that you would like to add in? In particular, you know, all wildlife, not just birds. We hear a lot about the, the climate crisis that's going on, but there's also a even more dire biodiversity crisis and species crisis with animals going extinct and becoming endangered. And I think there's a lot that folks can do to help offset some, some of that and, and help preserve wildlife by protecting and supporting the conservation and management of healthy functioning ecosystems. It's not enough to only purchase or protect a piece of land and set it aside, like putting it on a shelf. Managing for functioning ecosystems is not only going to help offset the climate crisis, but also help offset the biodiversity crisis that we're in and save an awful lot of species. Well, thank you for all the information that you could um, provide. And uh, thank you for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. And that was Neil Gifford. And we thank you for that interview and some fascinating bit of information. And for our listeners, remember, birds are our friends. We dive into the archives to hear a segment from a couple of years ago. Jonathan Kutub spoke spoke at the St. Andrew spoke at the St. Andrew Episcopal Episcopalian. Episcopalian Church 
about a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. This is HMM correspondent Keelan McPherson reporting at St. Andrew's Episcopalian Church on Sunday, October 17th at 2 p.m., where Jonathan Katub will speak about Beyond the Two-State Solution, his book, and what is going on in Palestine and what the solution could or should look like. This is from an hour-long talk. You can hear the whole hour-long talk at our website at mediasanctuary.org slash stories. But the situation is changing in very major ways. It is not an accident that uh, Zionists are horrified by the idea of BDS, which is, after all, a non-violent action. Uh, they, they go ballistic over Ben and Jerry's for refusing to sell their ice cream in the settlements. It is not an accident that, they, that even the liberal Zionists are trying to pass some kind of resolution in Congress to reinstate the idea of two states. Because what's happening in Palestine is that nobody there talks about two states anymore. The Israeli government is openly saying, no, there will be no Palestinian states uh, at all. We're not even negotiating about that. We don't even want to talk about that. It's off the table. Uh, and, and, and the reason is because there are changes coming. And they will come, and they will be radical, and they will be amazing, and they will happen in a very short time and send everybody's head spinning. In fact, the only people talking about two states now uh, are, are, are either liberal Zionists or people who want to support some form of a continuation of the status quo, which everybody agrees is unsustainable. But, but, but what has happened is that the extent and the degree of settlement activity has been so extensive that it's no longer possible to have a two-state solution, even if Israelis wanted to have it, and they don't. Because there's about 700,000 settlers now living in all Jewish communities with roads that only serve Jews with a legal system, and a police system, and a health system, and an educational system, and an infrastructure that only serves Jews. And an administrative system and a mindset that thinks of all the West Bank as part of Israel, with the Palestinians kept in small, tight reservations, and the need to maintain the friction that these Palestinians are something of a state, a group that had invited me to speak tonight. No, 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 no. This is a problem. This is hate speech. We don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it not because my ideas are hate speech. Not because I'm anti-Semitic, because I tell everybody every time anti-Semitism is wrong and it's a sin and it's a hateful movement that we should have nothing to do with and the Christians need to repent, Western Christians especially, for the sin of anti-Semitism as well as for the sin of hating Muslims and Islamophobia. 
because that's a big sin now these days in, 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 in Western churches and among Western Christians. But the, the reason they don't want a discussion is because they can't defend what is indefensible. They can't defend their own racism and discrimination against us and cannot deliver to their people with their promise. Let me explain why. See, Zionism is based on the idea of a Jewish state. A state as Jewish as France is French. This is what they want. And to achieve it, they had to do some ethnic cleansing, basically, kick out as many non-Jews as they can, and bring in as many Jews as they can, and create a new state as Jewish as France is French. And, and they marshaled a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of military power, a lot of political power. Uh, they harnessed a lot of the guilt about anti-Semitism, and they harnessed a lot of the support by the colonial powers, whether it was Britain who gave them the Belfort Declaration or the United States today who continues to support them. They subverted the surrounding Arabic countries as much as they can by dealing with illegitimate, unpopular leaders to work for them. And they really, really cut down very hard on Palestinians. They fragmented us into five different groups. Each one has separate laws and rules that apply to it. There's uh, at, the, at the apex, there's the Israeli Arab citizens who are citizens but have no real power at all. Even though there's two million of them, they don't have any weight in Israeli society and they're treated as a fifth column of traitors. Then there's people in the West Bank and many people think this is Palestine. This is the Palestinian state. And they've been cut off into areas A, B and C and the settlers are all over there, and the, their own leadership, the Palestinian Authority, is increasingly pressured to act against the interests of its own population, to serve the Israeli occupation as much as possible, and they're really caught up because their money, their revenues, their power really depends on doing what Israel wants. Then there's poor people in Gaza. Two million of them who are really kept under a very heavy siege. And the excuse is Hamas. Because of Hamas, we don't even talk to them. We don't talk about them. We keep them locked up in this prison. And then there's two thirds of the Palestinian people in the diaspora who are refugees who have no rights whatsoever. So why do I say that Zionism failed? I say that Zionism has failed because with every possible advantage imaginable, military, technological, financial, uh, actual control of, of the entire area, they have failed to create a Jewish state. The state today is at least half Arab. Half the people under its control are not Jews. And no longer possible to ethnically cleanse them. So I put up some of these ideas in this little
this book. You can buy it, you can download it for free from the internet from nonviolenceinternational.org. You can just click on that and download the whole book electronically for free. Uh, but if you want actually and then I invite the conversation. Let's shift and change the conversation. Let's have a new conversation that's open to both sides. Let's stop this idea of negating and demonizing and disenfranchising and, and, and totally destroying or ignoring the other side. Let's find a way that we can live together and work together. That's my vision. And that's my invitation to all of you to start a new conversation around this, 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 uh, this topic and this issue. And don't give up. Don't think that, that nothing can be done. Because a lot can and will be done. There's a lot of change. Even in the Jewish community, especially you're, you're spending money on the wrong things. You're spending billions of dollars to support Israel while you are quiet about their human rights violations. Yes, we need to challenge our own government because frankly, more often than not, they're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And this is a battle that we have to fight. I mean, I'm an American too, I'm an American citizen. And this is a battle that we need to fight here in this country with our legislators and with our government. And, and, and you'll be surprised. This has been HMM correspondent Kale McPherson reporting from St. Andrew's Episcopalian Church in Albany, where the Palestinian Rights Committee held an event where Jonathan Kotov spoke. He is the author of Beyond the Two-State Solution. He is also an international human rights attorney who helped negotiate the Cairo Agreement between Israel and the PLO in 1994. So that segment is from the Hudson Mohawk Magazine archives. We have more stories on the Israeli-Hamas war. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Andrea Kamleff. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is Kaylin McPherson. We thank all volunteers who made today's episode possible. Segment producers Mark Dunley, Moses Nagel, Mae Kelly, Kaylin McPherson, and your co-host, myself, and the wonderful Andrea Cunliff, who I want to welcome back. Hopefully we see you more. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and it is supported by independent donation. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. From our Instagram and Facebook, Hatsumohawk Magazine, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. So tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. See you next time.